0: Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. If you've listened to Fast Talk for a while, you've likely heard us mention cardiac drift or decoupling in several episodes. It's a favorite topic of Coach Connors. The terms refer to cardiovascular drift, which is a drifting in heart rate and stroke volume over time. On the bike, we measure it by looking at a rise in heart rate relative to power. Many causes have been theorized, including dehydration, muscle damage, cutaneous blood flow, and mitochondrial efficiency. Well, today, we're very excited to have as our featured guest, Dr. Ed Coyle, the University of Texas exercise physiology researcher who published the definitive articles on cardiovascular drift back in the 1990s. In that research, Coyle, who is also the director of the Human Performance Laboratory at UT, and his colleagues demonstrated that even when hydration is maintained, CV drift can be experienced. This increase in heart rate reduces the time the heart has to fill with blood, and this is the main reason for a drop in stroke volume, or the amount of blood pushed out by the heart with each beat. In a practical sense, when a person becomes dehydrated during prolonged exercise, they also get hotter and experience a greater increase in heart rate and a lower cardiac output and circulation of blood. That's CV drift. The exercise becomes very hard when it should not be hard at all. Competitive cyclists interpret this to mean they are getting a quote, better workout because it's more stressful. It certainly is more stressful, but that type of cardiovascular stress and drift is a negative stress. It does more harm than good. We'll dive into all of this and much more today on Fast Talk as we hear from Dr. Coyle and a host of other incredible guests who share their thoughts on cardiovascular drift. Now, let's make you fast.
1: Fast Talk listeners, you may have heard about our new coaching, education, and community membership program, Fast Talk Laboratories. We're pleased to offer you a chance to become a Fast Talk Laboratories member for free. Our new listener member level is free of charge and gets you access to over 175 of our podcast episode transcripts. Our new episode transcripts are searchable, scannable, and include links to helpful resources that we mention on the air. My personal favorite, all the references. Listener members also get our weekly newsletter, which highlights new episodes and offers access to limited time free content on our website. So come join Fast Talk Labs. Just go to FastTalkLabs.com, click become a member, and sign up as a listener member free of charge. Welcome everyone to another episode of
0: Fast Talk. This is a big one. Trevor, we've talked about cardiac drift, we've called it decoupling in the past, many times, many times in the past. Now we have Dr. Ed Coyle from the University of Texas at Austin. He is bigger than Jay-Z?
1: I almost looked this up last night. So so Dr. Coyle, so you know, the first time we had Dr. Seiler on the show, we called him the Jay-Z of exercise physiology. Uh. Because we, you know, I admit I have a bit of a scientific crush on him of a lot of his <laughs> research, for lack of a better term. Dr. Siley went through your your department. Dr. Andy Coggin was one of your students. So I almost looked up last night who is the godfather of hip hop, because <laughs> that's basically who you are in the exercise physiology world.
0: <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on the show, Doctor Coyle. Welcome to Fast Talk.
2: Thank you. Thank you. You, you. you all are too kind. I've, I've been around for a long time, I, I think. Things just happen. Good things happen.
1: We talked about this right before the show. I used to teach exercise physiology, and some of your studies were just required reading. If you go through an exercise physiology program, you, those, any student in one of those programs is going to encounter studies that you've done.
2: Well, we, we like to do studies that have some applicability, that both answer the physiology and you know ex- explain why or why not performance or stress during exercise is altered. We uh, try and do both the basic science and the application.
1: And so today, we're actually going to talk about one of those studies. We've talked about, so I'll admit, and I'm glad you've you mentioned this, uh, I tend to shorten it and just talk about cardiac drift. But really it's cardiovascular drift and, and that shortening changes the meaning. So we really shouldn't do that. We should talk about cardiovascular drift. But we've discussed that a lot in the show, uh, including with Dr. Seiler, because he's researching the, the implications of cardiovascular drift on, on longer rides and, and metrics to, to, uh, to monitor that. But you published two studies in 1999 and 2001 that are a couple of those almost required readings. Every study that I have read about cardiovascular drift since then, at one point or another, references your two studies. And they really did change a lot of the beliefs about cardiovascular drift. But before we get to that, let me just hit you with a simple question. Could you define cardiovascular drift?
2: Sure. Uh, Cardiovascular drift can be also called cardiovascular instability, where the system is, is not stable, it's constantly changing. Some people don't like the word drift, because drift sounds too frivolous, like it just happens for no reason. But the term is with us, cardiovascular drift. And for the most part, the main characteristic is you have a progressive elevation in heart rate, when you're keeping the exercise intensity the same. So your heart rate is is drifting upward. At the same time, your stroke volume is drifting downward. Stroke volume being the volume volume of blood the heart pumps per heartbeat. But typically that can happen while cardiac output stays the same. That is the amount of blood that's that's circulating through your body each minute is, is not really hampered that, you know, and the question becomes a chicken and egg question, well, what's what's causing the uh, reduction in stroke volume? Is it the elevation of the heart rate or the other way around? So we'll get into some discussion of that, I'm sure.
1: And before your study, it really seemed the, the popular belief was this idea of cutaneous blood flow. So could you explain that a little bit? Let me take a, a quick step back for any of our listeners who are unfamiliar with, with stroke volume. As you said before, stroke volume is the amount of blood that gets pumped per beat. So if you you think about it logically, in between each beat, your heart has to refill with blood. So if there's less blood flowing back to the heart, it's not going to fill as much in between beats, and so you're going to see this drop in stroke volume.
2: Yes. The studies of this began some in the 1940s, but mostly in the 1960s. It was originally thought that the instability was caused by pooling of blood in the skin veins, the cutaneous veins. And that, you know, if if you have blood that's kind of trapped or pooling, it doesn't flow back to the heart very well. And that that's the reason that you're, you're having this heart rate drift and this reduction in stroke volume. But, you know, most of the studies were done with people exercising at low intensities. They were still getting warm during exercise, exercise lasting 10 minutes to to 30 minutes. They were increasing their skin blood flow uh, in that time, 10 to 30 minutes. And so they made the association that it's the increase in skin blood flow that causes blood to pool in the skin that reduces the the return of blood to the heart. So that's, that's the classic theory You know, we look for evidence that blood was pooling in the skin, and there really is not any in the literature of of that happening. And, you know, when people exercise, uh, normally they raise their temperature pretty quickly if they're doing any, any, you know, exercise at normal jogging paces or running paces or cycling paces. They'll increase their temperature pretty quickly. And you know, once their temperature is at 38 degrees centigrade, further increases in temperature don't really promote more increases in blood flow. But it's those, lo- so those longer durations of exercise where you show the, the big drop in, in stroke volume and increase in, in heart rate. So the point is, is that the time that cardiovascular drift happened and was most prominent, the uh, skin blood flow and pooling of blood in the skin didn't, didn't appear to be happening. So we didn't think that could be the, the likely cause of it.
1: We're about to discuss how Dr. Coyle used beta blockers to research the role of heart rate in cardiovascular drift. But before we do that, let's hear from Kristen Legan, who is an elite cross and gravel racer. And now, as a coach at Rambler Rising, Kristen describes the importance of watching heart rate because of factors like cardiovascular drift.
3: When working with athletes and especially doing long rides, you know, cardiac drift comes into play. When I'm talking to them about their long rides and what power zones they should be in, we also always have to mention the cardiac drift because, you know, especially as they're getting later into that ride, they're changing that physiological system that they're they're actually working in. And so that's where... I prefer to work with athletes on power and heart rate on all workouts, but especially on those longer rides because you have to kind of switch halfway through or at least just keep your eye on the cardiac drift so that you you know once you kind of hit that point, you need to back down the power. Even though you might be dropping down a zone that you, you, know, you think you should be in, but you, your heart rate is actually the, the better indicator at that point.
1: So you did a really interesting study in 1999 using beta blockers to, to test this. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yes. We asked ourselves if, if it's not pooling the blood in the skin, what else might be lowering stroke volume? And of course, heart rate can. And as you mentioned, it's, you know if you increase heart rate, you're reducing the time the heart has to fill with, with blood. And you know that by itself might be uh, reducing stroke volume, and that's exactly what we found. That we had people exercise, you know, for prolonged periods, they uh, normally showed reductions in stroke volume and increases in heart rate. But when we gave them a beta blocker, and what what that drug does is it, it lowers heart rate, so rather than having a heart rate of 160 during exercise. They had a heart rate of 140. It lowered it back down to the, to the normal levels. And when we lowered, when we lowered heart rate, we uh, immediately raised stroke volume back to normal levels, despite the fact that we didn't change the skin circulation, either uh, skin blood flow or, or any, any pooling of blood in the, in the skin. So, so, we proposed it was simply that, you know, when you exercise, if you experience elevations in heart rate, that you'll have a concomitant reductions in stroke volume due to reduced uh, reduced filling time uh, of the heart. So, yeah, we you know we can talk about some of the ranges here. I mentioned that you know with cardiovascular drift, you can see heart rate elevation on the order of 20 beats a minute. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, that is going to have big effects on your body. You know, the elevation heart rate can come not just from reducing stroke volume, you know, during prolonged exercise, and this is an exercise that lasts longer than 45 to 60 minutes. As you get hotter, your heart rate is going to go up. And we think, and we've shown that that will drive down stroke volume. But also, as you go more prolonged, as your muscles become fatigued, uh, that will send signals back to your brain and eventually to your heart to cause it to to beat harder uh, because of the you know the increase increased stress. That increase in heart rate, for reasons maybe other than cardiovasculars, maybe because you're your, your legs are becoming glycogen depleted and you're having to recruit more of your fast twitch muscle fibers to maintain power output. And that requires, you know, more brain activity, uh, cortical irradiation. And so your brain is sending more signals uh, to your cardiovascular system and raising, and raising heart rate. So there are, there are a number of reasons why, you know, why heart rate can be elevated. The one that's most most practical, however, is when you become hot during exercise. If the intensity of exercise is high enough, you can become pretty hot within 15, 20 minutes of a very intense race or training session. And that hyperthermia by itself can can raise your heart rate, uh, which might lower stroke volume. Whether that affects cardiac output and performance or not is still a really open question. It hasn't it hasn't been studied directly,
1: which is a really interesting question. I'm actually looking at this uh, study in uh, the Journal of Sports Science and Medicine from 2008 uh, that kind of indirectly explored this. It, it was a. Uh, Uh, So, the the title of the study is The Role of Active Muscle Mass on Exercise-Induced Cardiovascular Drift. And so, they did had uh, athletes do one-leg pedaling and two-leg pedaling to see the effects of muscle mass. Uh, And one of the things they saw was that the change in core temperature didn't seem to correlate with uh, the, the cardiovascular drift that they were seeing. They were actually seeing it correlated more with the, the amount of muscle mass that was used in exercise. And how, how long was the exercise? It was an hour. So again, not incredibly long, but uh, it was an interesting study. I'm still a little confused, I'd say, by the the use of one leg versus two legs. So basically they were trying to maintain the, the relative intensity in each legs. So basically, uh, you, if you're on the bike, if you were measuring power, you'd be putting out significantly less power with one leg, but that leg was still doing about the same amount of work that it was doing when you were two-leg pedaling.
2: We talk about cardiovascular drift in, in relation to endurance athletes, and you know certainly is appropriate to do that. Uh, but another group who shows cardiovascular drift are very untrained people. It's been observed that even if you try and do a regular treadmill stress test on a person who has a VO2 max of only 20 milliliters per kilogram per minute, you know, half of what the normal value might be, that it's, it's very difficult for them to reach a steady state. That is when you exercise them continually when walking at two and a half, three miles an hour their heart rate just keeps going up and up and up.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> it just know, never until, levels off.
2: Never levels off, yeah, until they're, they're very close to the maximum heart rate. I'm not sure what that is due to. I assume that they, they are so out of condition that the, you know the exercise is such a novel stress for them that they're getting feedback from all over their body, from the muscles, not being used to it, uh, from the breathing, uh, and those signals to the brain are causing the the brain to send signals to the, you know, to the heart saying keep keep increasing heart rate because this this isn't right. <laughs> it's probably a good response for them to have in, in order to be able to ma- maintain the maintain the exercise for a little while at least.
1: Let's hear from Jim Miller, the head of elite athletics at USA Cycling, who explains how he watches cardiovascular drift to monitor some aspects of fitness.
0: When you're working with athletes, do you watch for cardiac drift? And if so, do you try to train it? Yes. I think that's the metabolic efficiency of this Endurance Plus in Zone Two. Uh, initially, when you have
3: athletes start doing this type of work, you always see cardiac drift at the beginning of the season. You always see cardiac drift As they begin to make adaptations, absorb those workouts. Then you see less and less of it. And then when you get into like July, like a summer now, they should be able to do that same workout with, with zero cardiac drift, uh, minus dehydration. Right. If you see dehydration then you, you can put two and two together and say, Oh, well, they train in Texas, of course, they're dehydrated. That's the cardiac drift, not the, the inefficiency of the athlete.
1: So I'm wondering if I could throw an idea at you. And, and I will admit I have been losing sleep about even bringing this up because I'm pretty convinced your response is going to be a combination of, well, duh, and that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard.
0: <laughs> Such confidence. You exude yes. it.
1: <laughs> but – I'll admit, I'm a bit of a science dork. I was fascinated by your study and really just couldn't get over this question of what is causing that rise in heart rate. So part of the reason I lost sleep is because I was just digging through studies. Again, it was absolutely fascinating in in your study that when you use beta blockers to prevent the rise in heart rate, stroke volume also didn't go down. So basically, it, it prevented this cardiovascular drift. So I kind of started with, I was interested if there were any other effects that beta blockers had on skeletal muscle tissue and started digging into the research. Obviously, there's tons and tons of research on, on beta blockers and, and heart. It was a little harder to find for skeletal muscle. So I was finding a little bit about it It certainly blocks uh, use of, of fatty acids as a, as a substrate. So, I kind of went right back to my original exercise physiology class. I remembered in, in McArdle, they talked about how uh, mitochondria can be a driver, a, a sympathetic driver of of, uh, of heart rate. Um, so, I looked up beta blockers of mitochondria, and lo and lo behold, found this 1993 study that I'll just. Uh, the 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 title of this study is beta blockers inhibit rat skeletal muscle mitochondrial respiration, which I found really interesting. So it, it basically prevents mitochondria from really ramping up. I continued to dig into the research and then found this really interesting two thousand seven study that looked at um, ultra endurance cyclists. So these athletes doing twenty four hour races. This wasn't actually a study on on cardiovascular drift, though at one point they did, in in brackets, just put the term uh, oxygen drift, which I think they they were trying to get at the same thing. But they used muscle biopsies on these athletes to look at the impact of this alter endurance event uh, on mitochondrial efficiency. And what they found was so the same things that, that you were talking about, there was a the gradual rise in heart rate over time, uh, the, there seemed to be an increase in, in oxygen consumption, and what they found was that uh, mitochondrial efficiency declined uh, over the course of the event. So the thought that I had is, could mitochondrial respiration be driving that rise in the heart rate? Uh, Could there be a case of, certainly when you're looking at a long endurance event like this, because the mitochondria become less efficient, uh, you need more and more mitochondrial mass to produce the same amount of aerobic energy. uh, And that is going to drive heart rate to increase slowly.
2: Interesting.
1: Okay, you didn't call me dumb. That's a good start.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting that... You know the beta blockers. The the muscle has beta receptors. Yes. And when you're on a beta blocker, your legs are dead. <laughs> I mean, yep. if, if you try and exercise intensely to you turn can. on glycogenolysis, you know, at intensities above above 80 percent of VO2 max, you, you really feel it. I've always assumed that feeling was because you're not raising cardiac output enough because cardiac output, you know, could be compromised at at the higher exercise intensities when on a beta blocker.
1: So since you didn't call that immediately dumb, just a couple other interesting things to throw at you is that I noticed in your study and several of the studies, they look at that short-term cardiovascular drift that you see in the first 10 to 15 minutes of exercise. And I can't help but notice that's similar to the length of time for oxygen deficit. And as I remember, oxygen deficit, so that that slow rise in heart rate and and, and oxygen consumption at the start of exercise is due to the fact that it takes a a while for the mitochondrial machinery to ramp up. So there does seem to be a a bit of a correlation there as well.
2: Yes, so definitely beta blockers are going to delay the time. will take longer to reach a steady state, equilibrium.
1: The one other interesting thing they had in that 2007 study was their explanation for the, uh, the decrease in mitochondrial efficiency uh, was due to increase in oxidative stress. So mitochondria are particularly susceptible to damage from, from oxidative stress. And so we actually did an episode a while ago on ROS or natural antioxidants. And found that one of the big differences between elite athletes and less experienced athletes or, or sedentary individuals is elite athletes have this amazing natural antioxidant system. As a matter of fact, they did studies on athletes. I think they were racing the uh, the Dauphiné and found that their natural antioxidants were so powerful that you saw a net reduction in oxidative stress over the course of the race. Where when they studied... They, they took far less experienced cyclists, put them through a similar level of stress, and you just saw them get overwhelmed by oxidative stress.
2: Right. Yeah. It's, no doubt the muscle especially responds to, to training in, in a healthy way, you know, not only increasing mitochondria, but, you know, but also increasing the reactive oxygen species enzymes to protect the cell.
1: What's your feeling on this? Is this potentially part of the, the mechanism here, the 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 mitochondrial respiration?
2: If you're thinking that, you know, the beta blockade increases oxidative stress and it is going to raise the stress on the cell, that will result in, in more disturbance of homeostasis. The cell will be able to sense that there's an energy crisis. If you're not able to, to use carbohydrate as well because of the beta blockade... And that should signal greater stress to the brain and an elevation in heart rate. The elevation in heart rate is is limited because of the beta blockade. It's affecting the, the heart, the pacemaker in the heart. I think it would have to be looked at, you'd have to try and give the beta blocker and keep its effect isolated to the muscle. You get the normal heart rate response and cardiac output response to exercise. That quite possibly you know, could show that the muscle afferents are more affected during beta blockade and, and activating the cardiorespiratory center yeah, in the brain and in the heart.
1: That's fascinating. I have no idea how you would do that, how you'd prevent beta blockers from in, uh, affecting the heart, but you're right, that would uh, that'd be an incredibly revealing study.
2: Yeah, what they do is they you can infuse into the artery, into the femoral artery, you know, a small a small amount of beta blocker, so that it it gets bound to the to the beta receptors in the muscle. None comes back to the heart. <laughs> so they had to do a lot of pilot work and, to get dose responses, so that you know you're not affecting heart rate during exercise, but 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 you are blocking the muscle to some extent.
1: I'm actually surprised nobody's done that study, but that's uh, I I would not have have. Uh, thought of that at all that that would be a really interesting study maybe we yeah. should do it trevor okay but we're we're injecting in your <laughs> your artery <laughs> no we'll get a we'll get for we'll, that one jenna perhaps our producer <laughs> Would you you don't
0: know what we're you haven't been paying attention we'll just use her <laughs> head coach ryan kohler maybe he's our guinea pig he's
1: not here yeah so
0: let's bring yeah, him let's in. he we'll, we'll volunteer
1: him Ryan, come downstairs. He's, he's we, new, we got this little thing we want to do with you. It's not going to hurt that much.
0: <laughs> yeah. Also, we're going to do 17 muscle biopsies tomorrow.
1: Oh, so there's a question for you that I have to ask. How many muscle biopsies have you done on yourself?
2: Well, I did only one on myself, you know, me doing it, but I've had about 12, maybe 15.
1: I figure this is, this is the nature of good scientists. They always have to make themselves guinea pigs.
2: Yeah.
0: Exactly.
1: You got to involve yourself in the science. Get deep. I realized
2: doing a biopsy on yourself is not that easy. <laughs> it's, it's not uncommon. And, you know, a lot of times we're trying to teach somebody to do a biopsy. It's easier just to do it on ourselves. <laughs> uh, Give
0: me that. I'll show you how it's done. Fast Talk is all about the science of cycling and training performance. But of course, there's more to cycling than workouts and training concepts. Our friend, Colby Pierce, hosts a podcast, Cycling in Alignment, that explores much more than training. On Cycling in Alignment, Colby shares what he's learned over 30 years of his experience as a pro cyclist and Olympic athlete. Cycling in Alignment reveals the holistic lifestyle that supports athletics. Interested? Subscribe to Cycling in Alignment on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Fast Talk. Or check out episodes on our website, FastTalkLabs.com. So one thing we haven't actually talked about, but that does come up in, in discussion of, of CF drift is dehydration and, and how that plays a role. So Dr. Coyle, I'll turn that question over to you.
2: During prolonged exercise, you know, longer than one hour, usually two to four hours, you know, as, as many cyclists routinely do in their training and racing, you'll become dehydrated. People are sweating at over you know, one to two liters per hour. You know, when you're becoming dehydrated, uh, you, you also become hot during exercise. It, it raises your core temperature. And so that's an increased stress, and that certainly will raise heart rate and lower stroke volume. You know, also during prolonged exercise with dehydration, you're reducing your blood volume. And that'll be a big factor in lowering your stroke volume and and increasing your increasing your heart rate. Those are the the big effects of dehydration. And the main thing is, is that you see reductions in cardiac output. Normally with cardiovascular drift. The uh, you have an equal decrease in stroke volume and increase in heart rate, so cardiac output stays the same—the the amount of blood flowing through the body. But when you become dehydrated and hyperthermic, uh, there's a drop in cardiac output. That is, there's a there's a big drop in stroke volume, about thirty percent, twenty-five to thirty percent, and your heart rate. Uh, will increase. It may go from where it should be at 145 during a ride up to uh, 170, you know, and, and not too far from your maximal heart rate. That increase in heart rate, although it's large, it's it's not enough to compensate for the decrease in stroke volume. So the point is as a result, you have a si- significant drop in cardiac output, you have a drop in how much blood is flowing through uh, through your body uh, to all tissues muscle has reduced blood flow skin has reduced blood flow so that's why you're getting hotter because you're reducing your skin blood flow and brain blood flow actually goes down a little bit i believe that jose gonzalez Alonso was able was able to show essentially you you are on your way to passing out because blood pressure is also going down and you know if, if you keep it up and keep going you will eventually of course have some severe problems with heat illness and maybe heat stroke where you're so hot and you're you're unable to cool yourself properly the dehydration that causes reductions in the skin blood flow raises body temperature your heart rate goes up but it doesn't go up enough because it's getting close to maximum it's really one of the the more dangerous uh, situations during exercise and it's something you should try and avoid if possible
1: i had a pretty dramatic experience with this i was at a race called the cascade cycling classic where it's usually extremely hot there's some humidity there and it can have a big impact on you and i was in the final stage and i remember halfway through i i was like a beat below my max heart rate, even though I wasn't going fully all out, and noticed I was having a harder and harder time holding a straight line, responding to the field, and almost caused a crash because the, the field went around a corner, and I just couldn't get around the corner, right, and just went, I have to get out of here. It's exactly what you're describing. I, I felt like I was starting to pass out uh, and just had to drop out of the field to, to not cause a giant crash.
2: Exactly. Yeah, that's a good description. You know, I, I used to belong to a, a, a cycling team, some of who were competitive cyclists. And we'd go out for these, you know, three-hour rides. And I would make sure to have all my water bottles filled and water bottles in, my, in my, the back of my jersey. And, and they were out there drinking. They are probably drinking only about a third of what they needed to drink. Sure enough, by the two hours into the ride, you know, they're struggling on hills that should have been easy for them it's solely due to just being dehydrated by, you know, two to four pounds of a quart and a half or so. This, but it's, I get a hard, I get a better workout when I'm dehydrated and hypothermic.
1: What is the rationale behind that?
2: Well, the thinking it's, it's harder. In other words, you know, when you're, when you're riding with the, with the group, you may not be be close to your maximal effort, but if you're dehydrated and hyperthermic, it's hard. It gets really hard. And so you're getting a harder workout. <laughs> it's almost like those people who you see running wearing garbage bags or those sweatsuits that trap this air, essentially, so you can't evaporate and cool. You know, they think they're getting a, a better workout. And wrestlers are notorious for doing that. Yeah, to lose weight, right? Yeah, they're trying to lose weight. It's just all misguided. And especially with the wrestlers, you're right. They're, they're trying to lose weight, and they think that if they get hotter and if they work harder, they'll sweat more and lose weight more quickly. And it's not true. You you're, Your sweating rate – is maximal when you're at a just a moderate body temperature of thirty-eight degrees centigrade and they drive their temperatures up to forty degrees centigrade. And, you know, there there have been a number of wrestlers who have died because of hyperthermia.
1: Right. They're just getting that core temperature up to dangerous levels.
2: Exactly. I, I've
0: even heard of professionals I won't mention the specific name, but and maybe it's a myth or a legend about this particular Uh, rider, but he would intentionally go out for extremely long rides and bring no water bottles so he wouldn't be able to hydrate. The thinking being, you know, that that harder is better mentality, but also the, if I do this in training, but then I'm fully hydrated during the race, my body body will do even more with what it has at the time. Sort of building up a tolerance to dehydration, I think might be the rationale there, of course, again misguided
2: definitely in runners too you know back in the 60s marathoners didn't drink much water their philosophy on drinking during a marathon was that drink only if you have to somewhere toward the end and drink as little as possible and jim peters was running in the vancouver marathon and in 1964 i think it was and he passed out just shy of the finish line. And he was interviewed after he got out of the hospital from hypothermia and almost died. And they were were asked, he was asked why he let that happen, you know, why he didn't stop and why he didn't drink more water. And his response was, I was fit. I was very fit and I wanted to show it. So it's it had been a kind of a badge of courage that you can go through a marathon. Without drinking very much. And fortunately, we've left that error behind. Studying cardiovascular drift has been a, a way to demonstrate how stressed the body is when you're dehydrated and how dangerous getting hot is. And the danger with getting hot, you know as you you cook your organs, you, you get so hot inside that that begin to dissolve some of the the membranes of of organs. And of course, that's not a good thing.
0: That sounds like something straight out of a horror movie, dissolving your membranes from the inside <laughs> out.
1: There's been a number of studies showing, I think it was was 40.5 degrees Celsius, but once your core temperature goes up above a certain temperature, athletes just shut down.
2: Yes, definitely. And your intestines are particularly sensitive to that. I forget the name and date of the the... Ironman triathlete from Australia, who uh, who after one race uh, had intestinal problems, and it turns out he you know he uh, he had to have a, a large section of his intestines removed Ooh. because they were you know the, they were essentially cooked during the the race. Wow.
1: Okay. I, I thought I gave a bad image with my race. <laughs> you just. Advance me to make sure I hydrate yeah. whenever I'm racing. Yes.
2: When you experience the dehydration and hyperthermia, not to the point of passing out, but you feel pretty stressed the next day too. It takes a while to recover from a from a workout or a race like that, and it's just remarkable how when you stay hydrated and you stay cool, how much easier it is in in our lab. You know, we typically do the heat studies of two hours duration. And when subjects become dehydrated, going at, at 65% of VO2 max for two hours, it's, it's a performance test just to finish the last, the last 10 minutes when they're dehydrated by four to six pounds of body weight. But when we give them the fluids at two hours, they're fine and if we keep feeding them water and sugar that you know they can get to 4 hours and show little cardiovascular drift little muscle fatigue within 4 hours they they're becoming glycogen depleted so then you have another cause of fatigue popping up but 2 hours versus 4 hours is the, is the difference in uh, in performance
0: time are there long term repercussions of always Doing a poor job of hydrating on rides. I'm looking. I'm Chris looking. Chris <laughs>
1: staring at me right now. <laughs>
0: well, I do. I'm. I'm as guilty as you are, Trevor. I honestly feel like over time, I've. I've. Me, me, it call me lazier, or maybe I'm just. Uh, maybe I have adapted in some way to need less. Maybe that's a stupid or naive way of thinking. But I just wonder, I feel like every time I go on a ride, I drink less than what is recommended or is best. So I'm wondering, A, I guess, can you adapt? Can you get better? And B, are there long-term repercussions, long-term impacts of being dehydrated every time you exercise?
2: It's like runners will go out for an hour run, lose about two or three pounds of body weight, about a quart of sweat that's how they work out. I don't know of any evidence that 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 small amount of dehydration is harmful, comprises their adaptations. It boils down to this. When you're training and when you have your hard days of training, and only maybe three days a week should be your real hard days, go on and off. If you're a little dehydrated, you may not be able to do those five times, five-minute intervals. So you're not going to adapt as much. What I'm saying is if, if your training is not really well-developed, you know, intense, then it doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> it doesn't matter that much that you're not drinking a quart of water. That amount of dehydration, even over one hour, we, we've shown that, that it will it'll affect performance. By about 6% in cyclists.
0: To get the most out of a really intense workout, you need to have your body in a very well-prepared state in order to reap the benefits.
1: And properly hydrated.
2: Right. If it's not a really hard ride, then it probably doesn't matter very much.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the practical side of things here. Trevor, why don't you start us off with a bit of an overview on, on some of the concepts?
1: Well, first of all, let me take a step back and just say we're we're now going to talk about cardiovascular drift and training. And really, as cyclists, what we're referring to is if you're riding at that set wattage, you see that rise in heart rate. But we're not directly measuring cardiovascular drift, that we don't have a device on your bike that can measure your stroke volume. Uh, So, this is, uh, Dr. Ko, I'm assuming you'd agree that we're This is a correlate, not an actual measure of cardiovascular drift. Right, okay. Former pro Cameron Cogburn describes a workout he used to do, aerobic threshold rides, that would help him to determine his race readiness based off of his cardiovascular drift numbers. But he also explains why, as he became a better cyclist, he started to do this workout less.
3: When I first started riding, I used to look at cardiac drift a lot. One of my favorite base building workouts was to go out and ride two, three, four hours at that aerobic threshold and see if my cardiac drift was under 5%. When I could do a ride of a certain duration at that intensity and have a cardiac drift under 5%, I knew I was ready to race if needed over that time period. As I got more fit, however, the power I found I could do five to six hours was just under 300 watts and I'd only have a cardiac drift of... Two or 3%, so minimal. And, you know, at least at my old racing weight of 68 kilos or 72 and kind of that off season base building part of the season, that's a huge amount of mechanical stress. I mean, a jewel's a jewel, and also digestive stress. So, you know, I started to maybe do them one or two times a year just to cap off a base building period, but otherwise didn't really do them anymore. And in my opinion, uh, and this is just based on anecdotes, I think the reason you don't see a lot of very fit pros doing these rides is because they're indeed massive efforts at their fitness level. And they might be able to handle the oxidative stress just fine, but those other stresses that don't scale with endurance fitness, I think, overwhelm the benefit of doing those types of rides all the time like on a routine basis. Personally, I'd say in the long run, it's better to do three days in a row of five-hour rides at 260 watts than one massive six-hour ride at almost 300 watts, uh, even if you have minimal cardiac drift in the latter.
1: We had a conversation with Dr. Seiler, bringing up some of his research, and he's really been looking into this longer-term slow rise in heart rate that you see relative to power as potentially a, a benchmark of an athlete's level, of their fitness level. And going back to that's why I brought up that mitochondrial efficiency, because if you're seeing a, a drop in mitochondrial efficiency over time, that's certainly an indication that you don't have as good an endurance as somebody who's able to withstand that, withstand that, that oxidative stress. But so, Dr. Coyle, we'll, we'll throw it to you. And what is your feeling? Is this correlate, this, this rise in heart rate relative to power, a, a good metric in training? Or is it just interesting, but it, it really doesn't show much about your fitness?
2: You know, the extent of the cardiovascular drift is, is best gained by measuring the increase in heart rate and the increase in heart rate at a, at a given power, if you're not becoming hyperthermic or too dehydrated, which really doesn't happen until you've been exercising longer than an hour or so, if you're able to keep keep your level of, level of hydration, and as long as you're not exercising in a very hot environment where you're, even though you're hydrated, Your body temperature is going up because that by itself will be will be raising heart rate and and lowering stroke volume. You know, there haven't been many studies, you know, how much heart rate drift there is after that point, going two, three, four hours. We've done studies where we exercise people, cyclists, train cyclists for four hours, and we do muscle biopsies to see what their glycogen levels are. And that's why I said before, I, I think, although we haven't published it, I think that when your glycogen levels become pretty low and you have to start recruiting more of your fast muscle fibers, that, that's going to raise heart rate just because you need more, more brain drive, more simple drive to uh, keep the recruitment level going. As far as using cardiovascular drift as a measure of fitness, you know, I haven't seen any any data
1: on that. So hopefully this is just breaking new ground.
2: Well, there's, there's so many things that, you know, cardiovascular drift can be caused by reductions in blood volume, increases in dehydration of the blood, increases in body temperature, fatigue of certain muscle fibers, and having to recruit more. It's not such an easy thing to study. The body's, of course, amazing in, in its redundancy so you, you take away one thing you know, as, as a, either positive or a negative, and something else steps in and takes over. So we're maybe not entirely, but for some part of it, yeah. So it's, uh, the results are always dependent upon, you know, who are you studying? What's, what's their background or level of conditioning or age? When are you making your measurements? So you know a lot of the what may seem like small details are important for for being able to not only understand the science, but for being able to apply this.
1: We talked with Tim Cusick, coach and training peaks WKO product leader about monitoring cardiovascular drift and training software. Tim feels there's a value, but talked with us about all of the nuances of monitoring it. To make it a much harder metric to use than we would have thought.
4: I do think, again, you go back to the stress-strain relationship, right? You need both. It could have actually, you know, power and heart rate can work together. Sometimes they can't, sometimes they can. Low-intensity stamina, that type of low-intensity impact measurement is a place they actually can because they tend to be, when you think about what we're creating, workouts and stuff like that, they're, they're steady state in general, let's just call it. So cardiac drift is important. And I do think it's a indicator of stamina and some aerobic fitness. I don't want to say aerobic capacity quite, but maybe. The problem is you need to filter out the noise, particularly at low intensity. So there's not a high variation. And so in WKO, we do measure cardiac drift. So we have some cardiac drift charts already. And it's pretty good because it'll actually put a simple linear regression the math, which really is a, a mathematical term it will give you an actual number of that drift. So you could technically call that a drift score. I'm not sure I would, but you'll have a number of the, the, the slope of that, right? So the reality is we have that ability to measure cardiac drift. We have the ability to put a slope to it. We have the ability to put a regression to it. So we get a number and we say, okay, here's what happens over time. The problem is if you look at a a workout over time, let's say a four-hour ride, right, and the person has stopped three times and your heart rate drops down to 65 because you're sitting, you know, and recovered or whatever, that outlier data will absolutely taint what you're seeing in drift. So we've been doing some work on trying to measure your cardiac response to what you're calling low-intensity stamina, low-intensity work. But we need to peel out those outliers first. And that's a little bit tricky. We, we, we haven't found the, quite, the right way to do it. Um, we are testing two or three different systems, analytics that will do it. And I think if we can get it right, it would be some pretty good information on measuring the strain that the system is going under during the stress of low intensity work
1: that's a really good point and so far my only solution has been any anyway, one of the athletes i coach can tell you coffee shop rides are not allowed
4: yeah right and that's the key yeah, you're totally i do it to mine too you know and the number of times i get in an argument about people they're like well i rode four hours at 180 watts and i'm like no you didn't turn that stupid auto pause off and let's see what you really got because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you sat at that you know you had two stops at 20 minutes <laughs> um, of course it should be a little higher that is the struggle we pick up so many outlier you know, when, when you're creating metrics, it, it, it's the hardest thing, right? People don't know. And this is where Goggin is genius because he the reason he takes everything down so simple is to be more specific. There's so much problems with the data, you get killed. You got to get rid of those outliers. If somebody was to go and ride a four-hour straight steady state ride, we can give you a perfect cardiac drift. I could score it. I could show you some really cool analytics on plotting. You could track power at heart rate outputs over time, at low intensity power outputs over time to look to potentially see improved cardiovascular performance. I don't want to say fitness again there. So all that's doable if the athlete gets rid of the outlying data, outlighted data kills that type of high end analytic where you're using regressions and stuff like that.
1: I have to give you full kudos. And uh, WKO three, if somebody paused for more, like stopped riding for more than a couple of minutes, it just condensed it. Yeah. And when I saw WKO four, and it showed the full length of the the time off the bike, I was first like, oh, you know, now I can be able to see any of the data. But then immediately saw the value because I, I would see my athletes who would take those super long times off the bike, <laughs> like aha. You no, know, I see who's I, doing it.
4: I literally have a web recording of me answering the question, why does my mean maximal power not match what Strava says? Because Strava buffs out all the stops. Yes. So like Strava will give you a 20 minute, you could stop at nine minutes and at 17 minutes for a minute on Strava and it will still count that as a 20 minute peak. And obviously in WKO, we never manipulate the data. So people are like, but WKO is wrong. It's 15, 20 watts less no you stopped yes. <laughs> once you stop it's not mean maximal power i'm telling you <laughs> but yes no it is what it is we have those metrics and, and in that way and we can look at it if you know and i can create some stuff for you if you guys shoot over to me you also have to define stamina tell me what you want but you have to define stamina. so stamina uh, do you mean stamina like in our definition stamina is fall off a plateau so we yeah. use it. We have a metric called stamina, which is a low-intensity metric, but over time, and it basically is the rate of decline past one hour.
1: My definition of of stamina is ability to maintain homeostasis.
4: Absolutely, and that's a great definition. And we took the inverse measurement when it comes to power because it visually articulates very well. If you have a straight line, which is threshold, and you know that threshold is somewhere near your one hour power. Then you see, so we pick a point of inflection where you begin to drop off. What gets hard in stamina measurement is, and we do it as a percentage score. So let's say you have an 80% stamina. So it's, you're maintaining, retaining 80% of your threshold power. But if you only ride your bike for two hours versus you ride your bike for 10 hours, that 80% have dramatically different meanings. And that's what we've not been able to solve in Hmm. measuring stamina. Because we can't take it to any one fixed time period. Now we thought about making it only if you have a four hour ride or longer or something like that, but then that's problematic in public software because everyone complains, why don't they get a number and then you have 20,000 tickets in your (laughs) customer support. (laughs) So you can't do it. You'll just, the answer is yes, though.
1: Let me throw another one at you. Uh, I don't know if you saw, there was this recent study in 2018, it was a fairly short study, but they hypothesized that riding at maximal stroke volume is a very important stimulus for adaptation. And then they experimented on cyclists where they had, this is a crossover study, so initially they had the cyclist just ride steady for 30 minutes uh, right around VT1 and showed that you saw the rise in heart rate, you saw the decline in stroke volume, and so they actually only really spent about a minute at at maximal stroke volume. Then they had them do 10-minute, a series of of three 10-minute intervals, uh, again, at at low intensity, right around VT1, and showed that doing that and taking five-minute breaks in between, they tended to stay at max stroke volume longer. So, I think it was in the continuous group, it was about 1.5 minutes at max stroke volume. Uh, in the, the intermittent group, it was about eight minutes at max stroke volume. And so they theorize that that's a, a more effective way to train because you're going to get a better adaptation by averting some of that uh, cardiovascular drift. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but what's your feeling about that? Is Do you think that's a, a good way to train?
2: You know, training for max stroke volume the best way to do it is, is with intervals, I believe. But as I understand that study, they were keeping the intensity only at 75%.
1: Right. So it was low intensity intervals.
2: Yeah. So Joel Trinity did a study that was published in the, in the Scandinavian journal of, of physiology. He had trained cyclists do five minute intervals at at various percents of VO two max, all the way up to one hundred percent, and and even super maximal over one hundred percent, stroke volume was pretty constant at uh, eighty five to to ninety five percent of VO two max. I think you can get your you can maintain a very high stroke volume, you know, even at ninety five percent of VO two max for trained athletes. And there have been some reports that that when you go to at that level and at 100% of VO2 max, that stroke volume is even higher at those those maximal intensities. I would think that's the best way to train. That is, don't limit your exercise intensity to 75%. Train more specifically at uh, intensities that elicit VO2 max. There are several studies that have shown that the, the largest increases in VO2 max, in, in average people at least, can be gained if they if they do intervals at 95 to to 100% of VO2 max. They can show, amazing, 45% increases in VO2 max from a Hickson study in 19, uh, 1987, 87, I
1: think. Fascinating. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that the study that I just mentioned, the issue is there isn't that much demand from the muscles for oxygen so the body can afford to let stroke volume drop a bit when you're up at vo2 max where your body's trying to get your muscles trying to get every bit of oxygen they can get the body's basically going to say yep maximize stroke volume there the if you want to spend a lot of time at maximal stroke volume do hard intervals
2: yes I, and it's just it, it's in line with the specificity of training and if you want to raise your VO2 max, the best training to do that is to do repeat intervals at close to VO2 max. So, you know, so the most common type of aerobic intervals for competitive runners and probably Andy Coggin, because Andy Coggan did these in my lab for <laughs> two or three times a week for years, would would be exercise for five minutes at VO2 max. You know, the, the minimal workload that elicits VO2 max, and you can check it because you'll you'll be getting very close to your maximal heart rate after five minutes. You know, rest three or four minutes in between and do that five times. Five times times five minutes is 25 minutes of exercise you have at, at VO2 max. You know, that's that's really very effective for raising VO2 max and training training the your muscles too.
1: We recently had a discussion with another guest about just how painful doing five by five minutes at VO two max is. But yes, that's that's a remarkably effective interval.
2: Yeah, it helps if you can have a group doing it. We used to do it in the lab. We would we have a bunch of ergometers, so we'd put them in a circle, <laughs> and there's accountability. It's a team there doing it. And if certainly, you can do this on the road. You know, especially you know when you have a certain hill climb few people doing it so you know they they are tough and it is something that i know that you know i hesitate to do on my own or if i had to do my on my own i would i would try not to make deals with myself and say oh just do three today not five you know
1: oh let's make yourself do all five For some reason, this is a reminder we had this uh, Australian coach uh, coach who worked with the Australian national team on the show a few years ago, and he was telling us about a study they did that they never published, where they they simulated the Tour de France on trainers. So it was a three-week study, having these athletes come in and spend four to six hours per day on the trainers, and his comment was, you should have heard the words they were using to describe me by that third week. So, I'm picturing the same thing of these people in a group doing these VO2 max intervals. And by the fifth interval, what the, what they're saying to you and Dr. Coggin about making them do this?
2: Yeah, I think Coggin did them all by himself. He was he was before we even got a group together. He's tough, really tough.
1: I did not know that. That is impressive.
2: He was doing that kind of training. Of course he wasn't training outside very much, so he didn't have a much of a tan. And he showed up at the starting line of the state championships. Uh white. <laughs> you know, no farmers tan or cyclist tan for him. People just yep. didn't know who he was. And he, he broke away and won the race, the road race.
1: Oh wow. Wow. That's impressive. I, I did not know this about him.
2: Oh he was a national one of the top two or three in the nation for
1: masters. Is that what uh, got him into to researching uh, cycling?
2: I think so. Yeah, as as a junior, he focused on the science of the science of cycling. So,
1: but I have to ask, what got you into studying exercise physiology?
2: I was a runner in high school and college, and a little bit club after that. Became interested also in the science of of running and. Also went to study with Dave Kostel, who, who is the guru for, the, you know, the father of running exercise physiology and, and human exercise physiology. I picked up biking after learning some things from Coggan for the most part.
1: So he convinced you to get on the bike.
2: Yeah. And a bum knee, too.
1: Norwegian national team coach Sandra Scarley knows to reevaluate and possibly adjust intensity when you start to see cardiovascular drift in his athletes.
5: On the athletes uh, I coached, if if we see a really big cardiac drift, then uh, it is often that the intensity was too high. Then we have to look at intensity to see if it was higher than normal. It can, of course, be... uh, in a warm uh, climate. If the weather is warmer, then that could probably be the reason. It is uh, something you should uh, take into account and maybe do some adjustments if necessary. It's interesting to see when the cardiac drift starts because if you can uh, delay that part, then uh, you're probably getting better. So the, the, the longer you can wait to get that cardiac drift, uh, it is a good sign. So I think it's interesting uh, to follow as for indoor cyclists uh, during the winter time here in Norway, I think uh, it's uh, it's a common thing, and uh, and and you can use it uh, to uh, to get to know your body and to make some uh, good uh, adjustments, plans for the next workouts.
0: Well, Doctor Coyle, we uh, always like to close out our episodes with a bit of a take home message. We run around the table and each take our turn. We'll start with you this time. What is the most important message people from, should take from this episode?
2: That, you know, when they're, they're exercising for, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, even if they keep the pace the same, the intensity the same, they'll, they'll show a slight increase in heart rate, maybe going from 140 up to 150, 55, and that's all normal and, and fine. If you're exercising for longer than that, and now you're, you're going to be losing some body weight, becoming dehydrated. You should make more of a plan to take in fluids, water or sport drinks, and try and take them in at about the rate that you're sweating. Usually about one quart per hour works for most, for, for most people if you're going out there for a, a two-hour, three-hour bicycle ride. You know, and, and just try and minimize the amount of dehydration you have because, you know, that's the, the biggest factor in causing causing you to get hot and is getting hot and dehydrated becomes a real negative stress on the cardiovascular system and causes, you know, large increases in, in heart rate and reductions in cardiac output. So that's not good. So try and avoid that situation. And don't become overhydrated. Don't drink more than you're sweating. That is, you know, don't gain weight during a workout or a an event, because if you drink too much fluid, you can become hyponatremic. You drive down the serum sodium levels, the blood sodium, and that causes problems with the brain and, and things like that. So, so uh, don't gain weight. During the course of your triathlons, if that's what you're doing trevor what do you what do you have
1: for a closing remark? I think one of the reasons I've always been particularly fascinated with cardiovascular drift is it's one of these things that just shows the remarkable complexity of physiology that they're there as you you said earlier, Dr. Coyle. There's multiple factors that can contribute to this, that that can cause this rise in heart rate that you see relative to your power if you're, you're on a bike. This is why we've been saying on the show for a while, don't just ride at 200 watts and go, okay, now my body's responding a certain way. This is why you need multiple metrics. This is why you need power, why you need heart rate, why you also need to listen to rate of perceived exertion, because our physiology is just so much more interesting and complex than that yeah I don't know if I have uh, anything more to add. great well dr. coyle, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show.
2: Oh, thank you it's been fun and i'm I'm so glad you guys are into the physiology you know and reading these things that's that's uh, that's that's uh, commendable for you
1: we really appreciate that thank you.
0: That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback, so join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Kristen Ligen, Cameron Cogburn, Sondra Scarley, Jim Miller, Tim Husick, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.